Well, this evening, we are definitely going to finish that one page on the Holy Spirit. <laughs> I've been saying that for a couple weeks, and I think we're finally going to actually accomplish our objective tonight of getting that one done, and hopefully that'll get us into the next page as well. So we are on the addressing the Holy Spirit's activity on earth. We went through and talked about... Well, maybe I should let you tell me what we talked about. We did get through pretty much of it, all this, right? We didn't really get talked about the fruit of the Spirit too much three, two weeks ago. So this is a little long of a review. So where did we stop two weeks ago, for those of you who were here? Checking your notes a little bit? We didn't get to fruit, no. All right. So we talked about the the salvific elements of the Holy Spirit, the non-repeatable. We want to talk about the developing elements in our lives of the Holy Spirit, specifically in the terms of through the Spirit and then uh, what our response should be to Him. Uh, we talked about guidance and illumination. We did refer to that. Uh, we talked about the necessity to be responsive to Him. So the through the Spirit... Oh, yeah, we talked about it, because I told you it's not a definitive list. So the fruit of the Spirit, we'd say, well, there's nine fruit of the Spirit. Well, no, Paul listed nine fruit of the Spirit. doesn't mean that's all there is. It's just like so many of his lists, they are representative. And so much like, and that's going to be important when we get on to our next page of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, which we were going to reference here tonight and get into that. So when we talk about the fruit of the Spirit now, what's your response? The, the evidence and the demonstration of the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life is there by these divine qualities that we are going to show to one another and even to the world. And so it should be evident to the world that this is the fruit, the result of being Spirit-filled. In Galatians 5, we have other passages as well. So, as we draw to a close this list, we see that the predominant work of God overwhelmingly is the Spirit's work in this age. This is the age of the Holy Spirit, if you will. You might say, well, that's, what about Jesus Christ? Well, is the application of the work of Jesus Christ is being done by the Spirit. And that's why Jesus said, I go to the Father to send you the Son. So he is the, the manifestation, the representation, the, the actuary of what the Son has accomplished. So the Father planned it, the Son accomplished that, the Spirit enacts it in us. And that is beginning all the way back there with conviction at the top of our list, all the way through to the evidences of, his, of the Spirit in us. So when we talk about this, everything that God is doing in the world he is doing through the Holy Spirit at this, during this period, the church age particularly. And so when we talk about his presence here during this time, it is unique. It's different than the Old, than the Old Testament. It's even different during the Gospels when Jesus was on the earth. Jesus says, when I go to the Father, I will send the Spirit. Does that mean the Holy Spirit has never had access to the earth? Obviously not. The Spirit has come upon different people at different times. The Spirit came upon Jesus Christ at his baptism. And he says, if you speak against the works that I do, you're not speaking against me, but against the Holy Spirit. And blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is the only 
unforgivable sin described. And so we have a response necessary. We talked about this this morning, about the cooperative nature of the Christian life in terms of our security, of our inheritance. And so let's, since the Holy Spirit is the one who is doing the work of God on earth during this time, we should be very attentive to him. And we've lost that to some degree. Or we've gone overboard to some degree. Depends upon which group you're a part of. So some groups out there have abused the teaching of the Holy Spirit, the ministry of the Holy Spirit, and they have so been so emphatic in that that many uh, conservative churches and fundamental churches like ours almost go too far reacting against it, against that doctrine, that abusive doctrine, and become and almost diminish the idea that we have to be engaged with the Holy Spirit if we want the work of God to go on in our lives and in our ministries. We have to have him engaged. So we have these four positive and, positive and negative instructions, uh, very specifically, and, and really have just these four. The other ones, other, in terms of direct commands, we have these four. The other ones are all implied that you will be responsive to his direction, that you will be attentive to his illumination. All of that is implied, but it's not directly commanded. We have these four commands in relationship to the Holy Spirit, which is very interesting that we are to certainly, it's okay to have spiritual gifts and be interested in those. We're going to talk about that shortly, but don't lose track of these four commands. And they're here. They're very brief. We talked about one of them to being filled with the Holy Spirit We went under letter F, and so we're not going to rehearse that one again. But let's look at number one. It says, do not quench him in 1 Thessalonians. Do not quench the Holy Spirit. So we do not, and now quenching is about putting out a fire. And we talk about quenching the thirst. It's satiating. And it's not about satisfying, it's about putting him out. It is the term of, you can do, it's removing fuel, okay? To quench a fire, you're removing fuel. Or you can douse it, and that's also essentially removing fuel as well. So if you, if you go and compare the Holy Spirit to fire, which we have him represented as cloven tongues, and sometimes as fire, and we have that described as mighty rushing wind. We have lots of imagery in the scriptures, a dove, about the Holy Spirit, that he has this fiery nature, and that's not unusual. It goes all the way back to the Old Testament. It goes into every heavenly uh, vision, um, the fiery nature of God's holiness. And so, how do you quench a fire? You remove the fuel, you turn off the gas, you smother it. That's also removing a fuel, because it isn't just the wood or the gasoline or the or, or propane or whatever it is you're burning, there has to be an oxygen involved. So when we smother a fire, we are removing the fuel of oxygen, or the fuel, you can remove the coal or the wood or the turn off the gas and remove that one. It is removing the fuel, which tells us something, that the Holy Spirit is in cooperative relationship with you. That if you remove the fuel, he, his work diminishes. So how do you fuel the Holy Spirit? Because if we're not to quench him, then we should 
keep that fuel line open. How do we keep that? Well, what is his fuel? Word of God is his sword. That is certainly one tool that he uses. What is the other fuel that he employs? Your faith. Your faith. Keep those, that faith in the word of God. Obedience is a fuel. So when he says, do not quench the Holy Spirit, it is a negative. And then the other negative, do not grieve him. And this really falls more in the line of being disobedient to him in Ephesians 4.31. That the way we grieve him is by resisting or um, uh, going against him, being obedient, disobedient to him. And then uh, we are told to be filled with him. We talked about that in Ephesians 5 uh, last week. And then number four, walk in the spirit. You'll not fulfill the lust of the flesh. So we have this walking. So much like the ongoing necessity of fuel, don't quench that, is the ongoing nature of a walk. A walk with the spirit or in the spirit. So this is a daily activity. This is something that isn't conjured up uh, during its worship service. This is something that daily we engage in. How do you walk with someone? What does it require? You have to be cooperative. You have to walk together. You know, my, If I walk 18 paces in front of my wife, does she think I'm walking with her? No. Okay? And so she complains about that sometimes because I don't pay attention when we're shopping sometimes. And I get, she's like, are you walking with me? You're not walking. I was like, well, come on, girl. No, and I'm a notoriously fast walker. My, back in my day, I used to just do it. But to walk with him means that we're going to keep pace. That we're going to go at that pace. And we don't run behind. We don't lag behind. That we are walking. And I, one of my favorite races growing up in the children's program that I was involved in was the three-legged race. And I love that illustration of walking with the Spirit. And once you get out of sync with your partner, what happens? Oh, it's a disaster. You got twisted ankles and broken noses and, and you're falling, you're, you're yanking each other, and it's just a disaster. You get nowhere fast. And you're falling, you're, you're, it's just a, a mess. But I have been able to be, one of the things that I did with, the three -legged, with my three-legged partner, and <laughs> this is way back, I'm a little guy, and we used to put that three-legged race, three-legged band on our legs at the beginning of the day. And we would leave it on there for two to three hours at a time. We would run, run upstairs together with our legs tied. Okay? Well, I did set the record, Olympic record in three-legged race in the one Olympics three years in a row with different partners, but that's how, that, that's how you do it. You tie your leg together, and you do everything together, and now you're in such sync, you know exactly how the other person moves, and what does that require? It requires this proximity. It requires this commitment to say, I'm going to tie myself to the Holy Spirit. I want to walk right beside him. I want to be right in step with him. Boom, 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 and we can anticipate every hurdle, every step, every danger. You might say, well, why is that necessary in a three-legged race to have all these things in your way? Because the people in front of you fall down, and you got to get over them somehow without falling down yourself. And we practice that. 
we would practice running over people together. It sounds cruel, but uh, and not crushing them, just to get through them, to get and not letting them trip us up. And so the security of your Christian walk is how in sync are you with Holy Spirit? And are you walking in the Spirit? Is it a daily activity that you are engaged in where you are just trying to synchronize your life with what the Holy Spirit wants? We know what the Holy Spirit wants. He wants righteousness. He wants truth. It's communicating God's Word. And we're going to talk a little bit about, about developing that relationship. Now, what is not listed here? What is not on our list that is advocated by many groups out there in, in your response to the Holy Spirit? That there is one particular gift you are to seek as evidence of his presence. But what else is, do they think you should be commanded to do if you really have a relationship with, with God or with Holy Spirit? Do you see anywhere where it says be slain in the Spirit? They talk about being slain in the Spirit. That is a very common term among Pentecostals, that they want to be slain in the Spirit. In fact, I had a youth group meeting one time, and, and one young lady says, well, you taught all this. What about being slain in the Spirit? I've seen it happen. I was like, no, you haven't, because that's not a biblical concept. What do you mean by being slain in the Spirit? You know, oh, they just lay right out and... I was like, no, that's not being slain. That's not the Holy Spirit doing that to them. You know, they have no control. I was like, okay, well, let's go to the fruit of the Spirit. What is the evidence of the Spirit's presence in your life? One of the last one on the list, self-control. So when you lose control, that's not the Holy Spirit. That's something else, and that should startle you. Okay, God wants you to have control, obedience. He wants to be synchronized in your life. Satan is the disorderly one. He is the one that brings no control. And that's the, what, is, what did the demoniacs do in Jesus' day? Remember the one in the, that was in the uh, cemetery? And, and the girl? What were the demoniacs noted for? If you had a demon, what'd you do? You hurt yourself. You ran around naked. You threw yourself on the floor. You jump into fires. These are all disorderly things. Okay? where you are losing self-control. This is never evidence of the presence of the Holy Spirit. So no, we do not believe because the Bible doesn't teach to be slain in the Spirit as though somehow you surrender your faculties and now he's going to take control. That's the evidence that he's in control of your life is when you're not in control of your life. That is not a biblical concept. And anyone that teaches that and those that practice that are invoking error, and they are playing with demonic elements. No matter how many times they say Jesus, 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 okay, and did, do demon, can demons say the word Jesus? Do they recognize deity? Yes. Remember they, that when they were following Paul's eyes, he says, be quiet, you know, I don't need your help. When they are, that one person was walking around behind him saying, these are the servants of the Most High God, and all that, and, and it was annoying. Get rid of that. And so, yes, people can walk around saying, Jesus, 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 and be filled with a demon in the midst of doing that if it's leading people astray. The doctrine of demons we talked about this morning in Timothy. 
So demons have teachings too, and we need to be aware of that and alert to that. Does that mean everybody in a Pentecostal church is demon-possessed? No, okay? But I will tell you that those that lead them astray into that are teaching the doctrines of demons. When they're teaching that you lose control if you're Holy Spirit-filled. So we don't see these commands in Scripture. So let's not pursue what the Bible doesn't tell us to pursue. These ones are hard enough. Keep the Spirit fueled in your life. Don't quench him. Okay? Do not grieve him by disregard, by disobedience, by doing evil. Yeah, doing the opposite of the fruit. And please walk in step with him. Don't want run ahead, don't run behind. Synchronize your life with him. And we'll talk about how to do that here very shortly. Any questions there? So, the spirit baptism, and this is the next page, spirit baptism and gifts of spirit we're going to try to handle together because really spirit baptism is used by these others to as proof that you have the Holy Spirit. That you have to have this secondary work. So you get saved, and then somewhere down the line, and even, even water baptism, and then somewhere down the line you get spirit baptized. And so they're looking for a secondary work of grace. They're looking for a second activity in your life, a second event. This is very common, and this is something that they kind of dangle in front of church-going Christians like you who say, oh, I've never had that happen to me. They dangle that in front of you. Oh, you're missing out. What are you missing out on? What do they claim you're missing out on? Oh, this experience. This is all they have to offer. They don't offer better teaching. They don't offer a, a, a better understanding of God's word. What they offer you is an experience that makes your skin tingle. That gives you this emotional high. That's really what they're offering. But they paint it as though this is spiritual advancement. And so this is a secondary work. And so there was a huge migration in the 70s especially uh, into Pentecostal churches, out of Baptist churches, because we were going too far the other direction, ignoring the Holy Spirit or diminishing our teaching of him in reaction to what the Pentecostals were doing because they were searching for an experience. And the experience was touted as this is the evidence that you've been baptized by the Spirit. So you got saved and water baptized, that's great, but you need to be baptized by the Spirit. Is that what Jesus meant when he said you should be baptized by water and Spirit in John 3? To Nicodemus, that's the conversation with Nicodemus. Is that what he meant? Help me out. No, he didn't. So what was baptized, I'm sorry, not baptized, born. You should be born of the Spirit and born of water. So is he talking about water baptism and spirit baptism? No, he's talking about being born physically. And Nicodemus understood that. Do I need to crawl back in my mother's womb and be born over again? No, you're born of the water. That's physically. And you need to be born of the spirit, spiritual birth. He's not talking about a spiritual baptism, a separate event from your conversion. So what is spirit Baptism. Let's read this together. Some Christian groups have muddied the waters in this precious doctrine by insisting that a lot of teaching is not in the Bible and abusing what is in Scripture. Nearly all of those who are in this group 
view of spirit baptism and the proof of its occurrence, which is almost always tongue speaking, as a post-conversion event which completes our conversion and needs to be sought or even primed in us. All right? And that is a very clear teaching that you need to go in a closet and, and just keep doing the zzz, 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 you can And they encourage you to do several things. Uh, go into your closet. Go, go in a private and just be really earnest and zealous and just keep asking, 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 asking. And, and make sure you're fasting while you're doing that. And it might take several days for it to happen, but you keep after it. And, and you might even have to just start saying some words, and then it'll just start flowing. Let me share with you what I just explained to you. You just invited demonic activity into your life. Because that's exactly what shamans do to bring demonic activity into their community. They add drums, but sleep deprivation, food deprivation, light deprivation, and this mantra, this repetitious activity and is inviting demons. So let's be careful that we, and they even say that the word they use is that we have to prime it. Somehow, you know, you have to kind of start the pump up for the Holy Spirit to really start flowing through you. Nonsense. Nonsense. This is foolishness. This is satanic. So we have seven biblical teachings on the subject that should clear it up. Number one, spiritual baptism. There is one spiritual baptism for the church in Ephesians 1. There are not two classes of converts. We are all one people, right? We are all one. There is not two classes anywhere in Scripture, not male, female, not Jew or Gentile, not the saved and then the spirit-filled. All of us who have received Christ have received the Holy Spirit. And let's go to Ephesians 4.1. It says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling which which you are called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. So there's only one classification of Christian. Number two, baptism by the Spirit is the experience of every Christian. If you haven't been baptized by the Spirit, you are not a believer. You are not a follower of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ said, if I go, I will send the Holy Spirit. All right, and so if you receive Christ, you receive the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians, now remember, what's 1 Corinthians written to? The carnal church. <laughs> so Peter, or Paul is talking to the carnal church in 1 Corinthians, and look what he says to them in 1 Corinthians 12, which we're going to spend a lot of time there later on. Very quickly, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13, it says, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one Spirit. All right, so everyone in the church, even in the carnal church of Corinth, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Jesus. Uh, that group, that's who we're talking about, okay? Even all of them were baptized in the Holy Spirit. Not at a later date, at their conversion. All have received him. Number three, without the Holy Spirit in life, you are not a Christian. That is in Romans 8, 9, and 10. And uh, again, we use Romans 8 a lot for other things, but what 
we need to focus in on is that the Spirit is life. And if the Spirit of God dwells in you, well, let's read it. But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. So if they're saying you don't have the Holy Spirit, but you're saved, that's impossible. Because it says, now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. You cannot be the Lord's without the Holy Spirit in you. Those don't work together. Uh, and, and so, and if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who dwells in you, that raised Jesus from the dead, dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. So your eternal life is dependent upon the Holy Spirit taking residence in you. Number four, there are only four clear commands. We've already studied those. Number five, baptism by the Spirit is never commanded. does not say, go be baptized in the Spirit. Ever. Anywhere in the Bible. You're not to be slain in the Spirit, not to be baptized. It just happens. As soon as you receive Christ as your Savior, you are baptized in the Holy Spirit. It's a spiritual life. And if you should die between your conversion and your in your physical baptism, you still will have the Holy Spirit because you still have a life. Where the Spirit is, there's life. So it is not connected even with your water baptism. It, it has happened. Now, in terms of tongues, is it a sign of the Spirit's baptism or filling? No. And what I've given you is a sample list. You can go through that list. And what I'm showing you is that sometimes when the Holy Spirit comes, there are manifestation of certain gifts. Tongues are present in Acts 2, Acts 8, Acts 10, Acts 19. Almost all of these have to deal with Jews, and if not Jews, it is Jews present watching the first Gentiles get saved. Remember Peter and his guys. They're speaking, I think they're speaking in Hebrew. They're speaking in tongues, just like us. They have the same salvation we do. All right? Uh, but then we have... 241, 431, 65, Acts 11, 24 is the same group. First uh, Corinthians 12:30. All of these where there's no tongue speaking. Holy Spirit comes, He fills them, and there's no tongues speaking going on. So therefore, it's not consistent. It is not the necessary element. In fact, we have that bluntly stated that that the Spirit gives to various people different gifts, which we're going to look at a little bit. And so, notice again in Acts 1.8, you shall receive power if the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, Judea, and the other parts of the earth. Samaria is in there too. Uh, the power of the Holy Spirit in Acts 1.8 is not to speak in tongues, but to be witnesses of Jesus. Why did they need to speak in other languages in Acts 2? Because they had people from all over the empire at least, and maybe beyond the empire borders, who spoke other languages so they could clearly hear it in their own dialect or language, and they said so. We hear the word of God in our own language. And so this was part of the, of the miraculous witnessing uh, there, but it's not a necessity to witness. Did Paul speak in other languages when he went and shared the gospel in all the different cities of Rome? No, he spoke Greek. All right? And so, only on one occasion do we know he spoke Hebrew. When was that? You know? When he was being tried by the Sanhedrin, and the, the, 
the Roman official was watching and they were almost tearing the guy apart. And so he goes and rest, takes him out of there, thinks he's a troublemaker. And on the steps out to the Antonio Fortress, uh, Fortress Antonia, uh, on the way out, he allows Paul, once he realizes that Paul isn't the troublemaker he thought he is, to address the group at the bottom of the stairs and he speaks to them in Hebrew. And everyone gets real quiet because most people don't speak in Hebrew, even in Jerusalem, even on the Temple Mount. They spoke Greek. And he spoke to them in Hebrew, and they all got quiet. This is important. It's in Hebrew. Which tells you that Paul usually didn't speak Hebrew. He spoke Greek most of the time. And so when we look at this, the, the witness of Jesus Christ, and in fact, when you have to run through a crowd and tear off your clothes and say, don't worship us, we're just humans, um, you're not doing that in weird languages. You're doing that in the language of the people you're speaking to. So we are called to be witnesses. So if you want the power of the Holy Spirit in your life, it should move you to witness of Christ to others. If there's any one evidence that the Spirit's power is working through you, is that you share Christ with other people. And if we're afraid to do that, then we need to really develop our relationship with Holy Spirit a little bit more. Because that is the power of the Spirit, is to be witnesses of Christ. Acts 1.8. So, we've introduced gifts of the Spirit. We have ten minutes to talk about this. Yes. Yes, this is the... <laughs> okay. This is the use of tongues in prayer. That you do it in your prayer language. And it's going to one passage of Scripture. Uh, and, well, with a corollary passage about that we... The, the Spirit... Preach it or praise for us with groanings that cannot be uttered. Okay, now what does that mean? They will not come out of your voice box. Okay, the Spirit's prayer is not what's going on there because the praying of the Spirit cannot be uttered, it is not capable of coming out of the human voice box. What the Spirit does is as we pray, and our prayers are usually too selfish, they're too narrow, they're too whatever, the Spirit understands our heart and then brings these requests before God with groanings. It's interesting that he groans for us. You don't often associate groaning with praying, with groanings that can't be uttered. And so he, he is translating these, not to, be in a, not to take really bad prayers and make them effectual, he is taking limited praying, that is that we're limited in our language, to really communicate what's in our heart and mind. And sometimes we're limited in our knowledge, what we've learned. And Spirit takes that and does that benefit for us. Yes? Yeah, and we just say, oh Lord, help. Lord, help us. I don't, I, I don't know what to say, I don't know what to ask for, I just need you. And the Spirit can take that heart and translate it. So that rules out the idea that this is that verse. Um, but the idea that we have a the language of angels or prayer language, that we use it, I only use it in private, brings us to what is the purpose of the gifts of the Holy Spirit? Is there a private use for the gifts of the Holy Spirit? It is for the edification of the church. It is not for your private use and enjoyment. 
Their statement is, well, I'm praying for other people. You don't know that because you don't understand what you're saying. You're praying without understanding. Because their, their idea of a prayer language is not that I'm now praying in Chinese. It's gibberish. And so their understanding isn't engaged, so they don't know what they're praying for. And again, this is not in keeping with God's word. Because we've taken a word and not translated it in the Bible, the translation of the word is, well, we have an old English translation of tongue. A tongue is a language. It is not gibberish. And so when people spoke in tongues, they spoke in other languages that they hadn't previously studied. I would love to have the gift of languages and go to... I would love to have the understanding of languages just to listen to Pastor Maimon preach because he intermingles Filipino, Spanish, and English in, in, in one sentence. And I'm like, I think he's talking about this, but I'm not sure what he said. I understood a little bit of the Spanish, and there's, because there's a lot of Spanish and Filipino, and there's an English word at the end, so I know the, uh, but, I would love to have that, to understand languages, or to speak languages I've never learned. It's interesting that Pentecostal missionaries still have to go to language school. It should make you laugh. That's exactly the right response. You claim to be speaking in tongues, but you can't speak in a language. They wouldn't need it. They would not need language school if they could truly speak the spiritual, the biblical view. So what are the gifts of the Spirit? Spiritual gifts, and this really boils us down to a couple passages, Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, and Ephesians 4. Those are your three fundamental passages about spiritual gifts. 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, and Ephesians 4. So those three passages are your key groups for studying spiritual gifts. So pretty, pretty narrowed. And so let's look at the spiritual gifts. It says the basics, the gifts of the Spirit may or may not correspond to one's natural abilities. Normally they will not correlate with what you are capable of doing in your flesh. Why? Okay, the things of flesh are not of the Spirit. And what does Paul say? Where I am weak, he is made, he is strong. And so it brings him glory. So it's a spiritual gift, which means that we should be looking for it probably outside of our comfort zone of what our natural capabilities are. All right, now, um, for those of you who don't know my testimony of how I come into the ministry, this, is, well, this was pretty much last on my list. You know, when I'm looking at going to college, um, I was, I was pre-med chemistry major. Uh, I, I love science, math. Um, I pretty much was going to be a medical doctor. That's the direction I was going. And I didn't do that for like two months. I did that for three and a half years. So I'm in the middle of my senior year changing my major. All right? And then I changed my major to Bible comp. I'm like, well, I guess God wants me to do something, but probably not be a preacher. I could probably do this or this, but not preach. There's no way I would ever feel comfortable preaching. And then um, here I am. So this is way outside my comfort zone. I would get physically ill every Sunday morning having to go preach when I was in Rio Rancho. 
my first church. It doesn't happen now because I'm comfortable in the Spirit's work, and I can trust in Him uh, to be faithful in that respect. But it should be outside of your natural abilities, and they should enhance those so that God is glorified. Most spirit gift assessments. Have you ever taken one of those? How many of you have taken a, spir- a spiritual gift assessment test? All they do is tell you what your natural abilities are. The only way an assessment can work is if someone takes it about you. Because you're going to answer all those questions according to what you're comfortable with, and they will show your natural abilities will not show your spiritual gifts. I do not issue those. They were really in vogue in the 80s, 90s. I had to take them in college and seminary both, and, and, and uh, fortunately um, I didn't put any credence in them or I wouldn't be preaching here at all because this isn't in my giftedness categories. There is no gifted assessment tool available in the Bible. Okay, This is just psych Psyched stuff applied, and you can manipulate those. Hopefully you can recognize that. Yes. Take this assessment and go the opposite direction. You'll probably be in better shape. Okay. All right. All believers in the New Testament are said to have at least one gift. The, the, the Spirit distributes it to each as he wills. So each one does get at least a spiritual gift. And I will contend with you that as you develop that, he who is, entrust, who is faithful with one is what? Given more. You can increase in spiritual gifts. I'm convinced of that. That as we are faithful, that God will say, now I can use you this way. Now I can use you this way. And I will increase that. The Spirit can give it, and he can also remove it at will if you are negligent of it. I'm convinced of that too. And so, we all have at least one spiritual gift, and we're going to talk about that when we get in 1 Peter 4 uh, later on on Sunday morning. Now, the third po- basic point here, no one gift is promised to all. You're in 1 Corinthians 12. We've already been there. Let's go back there. I told you we'd be spending some time there. 1 Corinthians 12, we don't want to be ignorant about spiritual gifts in verse 1. And... Verse 4 says, There is a diversity of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are differences of ministries, but the same Lord. There are diversity of activities, but it is the same God who works all in all. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. It's for the benefit of the, of the church. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, to another the word of knowledge through the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healings by the same Spirit, to another work of miracles, to another prophecy, to another discerning of spirits, to another different kinds of tongues, to another, the interpretation of tongues. There's one we lost track of. But one of the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as he wills. So they're individually distributed. There is not a de- definite one that everyone should have that is the, is the evidence of the Spirit's presence. Uh, any of these, and this is not a complete list, because obviously Romans 12 adds to this, and Ephesians 4 adds to this. So that means that none of these lists are complete. That's not their intention. They're just sampling, which means you can't have spiritual gifts that aren't even listed. Hmm. Well, that kind of throws the assessment thing out of the water because they only list the ones that are listed. 
What if I'm off the chart? Because these are just sampling lists. These are not complete, or we wouldn't need all of them. And so we come to this, and uh, they should be identifiable. Uh, that, remember that uh, Pete, or Paul talks to Timothy and says, uh, you know, that you are to be faithful to, that, to the gift that you received at the laying on of hands. That when the elders laid their hands on you, you were gifted that authority, and you should use that, that gift. But he also tells them, do the work of evangelism. Whether you have that gift or not, you still have a job, and that is to, because the power of the Holy Spirit is to be witnesses. So be a witness, regardless of what your gift, even if you're gifted an evangelist in evangelism, you still have to do the work of evangelists, but we need to develop our spiritual gifts. They are developable, uh, and they should be identifiable. We should be able to say, see that. You know, what does that mean, that I can identify my spiritual gifts? Uh, they are identified in the context of a local church. Uh, when did I identify that God has called me to be a pastor? Well, I'm almost one of the last ones to figure it out. Other people around me came and said, we think you're going up the wrong tree, but we're praying and, and to have people just... And I went into... A, I, I investigated a lot of other... I wanted to be a, in the ministry. I wanted to serve the Lord in missions or something, but I just... There's no way I could preach week in and week out. There's just no way. God did not want that for me. And he also did not want me in southwest part of the country. No way. And I, I resisted it. And finally, uh, by God's faithfulness, and, and a, a lot of godly people, including my wife, um, in my life, but some men of God that come along and said, listen, you need to give more thought to being a pastor. You need to develop this. And that's not just in college and post-college. It was even in, in high school. I had a youth pastor that kept pushing me to teach a class, teach this. And, and we were in a group called, our youth group was very large, and we had the Come Alive singers and players. And so I would love drama. I sang in the group. And, but then when we were out in these churches and, and doing the drama, sometimes they would ask us to do a science school class. And I thought, well, that's the youth pastor's job. And he says, no, I want you to teach that class. I'm like, these are my peers. And he would challenge me to write. I'd have to write articles uh, and study passages. And, and that was my youth pastor, Rick Reagan. Oh, he pushed me out of my comfort zone so often. And I'm like, what is, what? I just want to, can I just enjoy? I mean, I remember I wanted to play basketball. I went out for the basketball team, and then my youth pastor met with my parents. And next thing I knew, I was off the basketball team, and I was on the Come Alive Singers and Players. Okay? So sometimes it takes that. So yeah, Rick Reagan is on my list, and I, have a, I can go right down this list of men that have come into my life and says, essentially, they did it gently, and they did it, um, very graciously and very godly, but they basically said, you're barking up the wrong tree, bub. You know, you need to go in a different direction in your life. God's gifted you somewhere else. And to develop those gifts instead of what I felt comfortable or what I would enjoy doing. By the way, I love to preach now. I truly enjoy this. Um, and that's what it means to be in sync 
with the Holy Spirit is that you're not just doing ministry because it has to be done. Sometimes you do it because it's your duty. All right? When you've done all that God has commanded you, what is your response to the Lord? I am an unprofitable servant. I've only done what is my duty to do. Sometimes you do it out of duty. But there should be joy in ministering. And this idea of being burnt out, getting burnt out in ministry, that means you're doing it in your flesh and you're doing it by your own strength and wisdom um, because there is no end to this Holy Spirit supply for you to minister his gifts. So you should never get burnt out in that sense because uh, that means you're ministering joylessly. And that probably means you're either doing it by your own strength and energy, you're outside of your spiritual giftedness, or you're just in disobedience to, to God in general in your Christian life. Um, modern revelatory gifts. This is where it all comes in debate. What do we mean by a modern revelatory gift? I'm, I'm over time, but let's talk about it. It means that you had a dream, vision, tongues, prophecy, uh, things like that, that you are claiming that God showed you something specific to you that he didn't show to other people. It's called revelation. And so this is, for example, we believe all the New Testament is revealed by God to men, all the Bible. These are the, God revealed this to men. So revelatory gifts. Now, were revelatory gifts necessary in the first century? Why were they so valuable in the first century of the church? Yeah, but why did you need the revelatory gifts? They didn't have the New Testament. So now they're in a new age, and so we see the revelatory gifts are necessary so that God could communicate to them. And this is the early stage. This is the, this is the infancy stage of the church. In the infancy, we understand that there needs to be extra precautions. And so we have the revelatory gifts guiding the church in its infancy until the scriptures were completed. And this is what Paul communicates in 1 Corinthians 13 when he says in verse 8, whether there are prophecies, they will fail. It doesn't mean that they're going to be wrong. It means they're going to cease. They're going to end. They're going to they're slow down and disappear. Where there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. What is he saying? These revelatory gifts were for the, for the infancy of the church, not for the mature church. A mature church that has a, a full scripture does not require it. And we put that away. We set it aside. We honor it. We recognize the necessity of it. And we, and we certainly applaud it. And we say, and we, we love it. But we also recognize that it had its place. And now we have the scriptures completed. And so these apostolic gifts during the time of the apostles, that's why we call them apostolic or revelatory, are going to be completed. So what is the thing that is perfect is the question in verse 10. And it's not the Holy Spirit. It is an interesting 
noun verb disagreement because it's something, but it's, a, it's feminine. And so we have the reverse happening with the Holy Spirit, that it's a neuter noun with a masculine pronoun. Here, this is a feminine with a neuter. And so we have a thing that is going to be perfected or completed. And it is your scriptures. Okay? Your revelation is going to have, is, is going to be finished at some point. And during the apostolic period. And so now a mature church, a, 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 an adult church, if you will, has the completed God's word. So whenever someone is chasing after prophecy, visions, and all of this, we understand the problem, right? What is their problem? They are dissatisfied with the scriptures. I'll say that again. When they're pursuing revelatory gifts, they are demonstrating a dissatisfaction with the scriptures. That they aren't enough. And that is a fundamental problem. One of the things you'll see very prominent in Pentecostal churches is the place of women. Why? Why would they particular? why would ladies be particularly susceptible to Pentecostalism? Um, sure, some of them allow them to take on that, that pastoral role, but that's true of a lot of denominations. But why, in, especially in the early days, are they particularly susceptible to this? Because now you can add to the scriptures that it's okay for women to do this and do that and do this and do that. Um, what does Corinthians tell about the Corinthians? What does 1 Corinthians say? The book about speaking in tongues, about your gifts. What does it say about women in the church? Remain silent. I don't like that. Well, it's really nice if I can claim to have divine revelation that we're allowed to speak because I'm dissatisfied with the church, with the, I mean, with the scriptures. So now I can modify them, and it's no different than the Catholic church that with the Pope getting revelation that trumps everything else. And so the, for the Catholic church, you know, the scripture is third in line of authority, right? Pope, tradition, scripture in that order. Well, in the Pentecostal church, it's your prophet, and your scriptures are below that, necessarily. They have to be. And then it's experiential, which women are tend towards more experiential worship than men. That's not that we can't have worshipful experiences. We, we can have those. It's okay. It's okay to get goosebumps sometimes while I'm preaching. Um, just don't tell me about it, okay? I, I just keep it to yourself. <laughs> Um, it's all right okay to get excited about the things of God, Lord. Yes. Correct. That's what the... Right. They, they... Correct. But it's very obvious that Paul expects that even his lifetime. All right? It's about, are we still an immature infant church? Is the church age in its infancy? No. Paul makes it very clear that this is infancy. It is, an, it is not a mature Christian that, that isn't satisfied by the scriptures. It is an immature Christian that wants all these touchy feeling and wants these visions and dreams. I don't need visions and dreams because my leg is tied 
to the Holy Spirit. I'm walking with him every day. I don't need a vision. He says he'll give me the desires of my heart if my heart is attuned to God's word. I don't need that. It is the baby Christians that need it because they are not satisfied. They're not in step with the Holy Spirit. And, and this sounds weird to you, that the people who are claiming these revelatory gifts are actually the most immature and dissatisfied Christians there are. They're susceptible to this. And they lay themselves open to the doctrine of demons. And so we need to be cautious and say, I want this experience. And they make it sound like it's precious and valuable and it's the proof you're the best Christian, you're a real Christian. Have you ever have you gotten baptized by the Spirit? Oh, you haven't? Oh, I'm so sorry for you. Well, you have to look at them and say, well, I'm sorry for you. That God's word isn't enough. That you're not mature enough. It's the same thing I say to Christians who don't eat meat. I'm saying, I'm sorry, you're so mature. As Romans says, that it's the weak Christian that can't eat meat. Strong Christian eats it and is happy. Woohoo! Doesn't even know. Doesn't even matter where that meat's been. As long as it's not spoiled. Okay. And so recognize what's going on here. They are wanting revelatory experience and to contradict and to go beyond the scriptures. And so on Facebook these last few weeks. I've been getting a lot of these statements. Oh, God showed me in a dream that Trump is going to win the election. I almost want him not to win the election just to shut all of them up. And then I can type all back to him and go back in all my faith and said, all right, you're a false prophet. So who gave you that dream and vision? The problem is, is that there's another group, a guy I called the Pope, who said that Biden is the president. And so now I'm in a, I, I can't win no matter who wins because then the Pope is right instead of Silo. Anyway, I'm pretty sure God hasn't given anyone a vision about Trump being the president. But we want it so badly. And yes, your subconscious can do that um, because God, God didn't even show Samuel who was going to be king of Israel, did he? Till the guy showed up. Samuel looked at the sons of Jesse and said, well, it's got to be one of these. No, not that one. No, not. I mean, Samuel didn't show up there and say, bring me your youngest, God told me. That's the greatest prophet of his time. That God never let a word fall from his mouth. And he didn't know which son of Jesse it would be until it stood right in front of him and God said, that's the one. Think about that. What these people are claiming compared to some of the giants of Scripture, true prophets. And we'll start to understand, you're dealing with immature Christians at best. You're dealing with demonic doctrine at worst. I don't want to... I I, I'll try to help people out of that and help them mature away from that. But the fact remains is that if they are advocating that, we need to recognize them for what they are and set them aside. Well, I've gotten really late. Um, I don't apologize. I just recognize this is necessary. Any, any questions? Do you feel dissatisfied with this? Or you feel like that's enough? Do I need to carry on this in two weeks? Can we move forward into healing? All right, great. Let's have a word of prayer. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. We thank you for your word and its trustworthiness and its sufficiency for us with your spirit's 
illuminating us to its truth and convicting us of our need to be obedient to it. Lord, we thank you so much for what we do have. And Lord, keep us guarded. Help us to guard ourselves from being discontent and searching after experience and, and dreams and visions and all these things that are just immature. They are just for the opening days, years of this church age. And, and Lord, we don't discount that you can do mighty things when necessary, especially in opening up the gospel in new countries and new people groups. And we know there are, there are clear testimonies of that throughout history uh, where you have come in and intervened that people might uh, come to know you, but we know that that is at an infancy level and not at a mature level. Lord, we thank you for your word, that we can mature by it, that we can grow in our knowledge of you and our faith in you through the ministry of, of evangelists, pastor, teachers, uh, and through the apostolic ministry we have in, in God's word. Lord, we thank you so much for it. And help us to grow, that we might walk step by step with your spirit. We might conform ourselves to his stride on a daily basis and keep fueling his work in us. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.